Hey there, it's Paula Ferris, and welcome to Journeys of Faith. Our next guest is widely expected to run for president in 2024. We're talking to Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina and United States ambassador to the U.N., On this episode, Haley, whose parents are from India, talks about being raised in a Sikh family in rural South Carolina. She reveals what she loves about the Sikh faith, but also why she converted to Christianity. Haley also dives into the Confederate flag debate, those rumors about her replacing Mike Pence on the ticket, and she opens up like never before about a possible run for president. Here's Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, welcome into the studio for the Journeys of Faith podcast. Last time I saw you, it was on the sidelines of the national championship, college football championship game, when Clemson was beating Alabama. Such a good time. Such a good time. We've had an amazing program. Yeah. I mean, really, three national championships in four years. We're proud of Dabo. We're proud of that team. We're proud of the mm-hmm. school. Yeah, you are. And Always. you went to Clemson just for all of those listening out there, you graduated from Clemson. I'm not going to date you and say when, but you're very young. Well, I graduated <laughs> from Clemson, met my husband my first weekend at Clemson, got engaged Gosh. at Clemson, and our daughter is now at Clemson. So we're a bit Clemson obsessed. What I really love about your history, your faith history, you were raised in a Sikh home. So tell me uh, maybe some of the tenets, the main tenets of the Sikh faith. Well, you know, it's interesting because we were the only Indian family in a small southern town. Probably less than 1% of the population in South Carolina is Indian. And then you go and you look at the Sikhs in the area. I mean, it was just small. Every third Sunday, Sikh families would get together at someone's home in the state to have, you know, to have prayers. And so it was probably no more than 100 people that we would get together with. But the faith itself is a very kind, peaceful faith. It's one that's all accepting. Um, They believe in one God. And what was so interesting was even though I would go every third Sunday with my family somewhere, um, my parents made us go to different churches, Methodist, Baptist, Catholic. I mean, you name it. They had us go to. My mom would say, I want you to respect everyone and how They do their prayers, but, you know, and understand there's one God, but everyone has their own pathway. And as long as you have your relationship with God, then you will be okay. And so they just wanted us, one, to respect other religions, but two, to understand and see the relationship people have with God. And so it was really important because I talk about how and why I converted when I would go to a gurdwara or a temple for prayers, I would feel it. I would feel God in the room, but I couldn't understand it mm-hmm. because I didn't read. I didn't know the relig- I didn't know the language. And so when I started dating my husband and we started going more and more um, to his church and he was Methodist, I immediately could relate. I immediately. You found a connection. All there? of a sudden there was not just the feeling, but it was the words that I could relate to that really meant something to me. And that was really when I knew if I wanted to grow deeper in my faith, if I wanted to have a stronger relationship, I needed to have something that spoke to me. And so that was that was how it happened. So your husband was Methodist when you met him. Yes. And you were Sikh and you had a multi-denominational wedding. You celebrated the Methodist 
traditions and the Sikh traditions, correct? Well, my family obviously wanted to see me have an Indian ceremony, so mm-hmm. I did. So that was for all of their friends and family. And then we had a Christian ceremony um, for Michael's friends and family. So in the end, we got married twice. And so I like to say <laughs> we're doubly okay. Yes, you're doubly okay. I know you just touched on it, but what made you convert to Christianity from the Sikh faith, a faith that your parents still adhere to? You know, it really was when you grow your faith, you have to be able to talk to God and you have to be able to go to a service and feel it. And if you don't understand the language, you're not hearing it. And it's harder and harder to feel it. And so and the language that they're speaking is just to clarify Punjabi. Yes. Was what they were speaking at the time. But, you know, you have to have that connection. And when you're sitting in service and you feel it, that's when it's so important. You know, I always say um, my faith has grown over time because, you know, first you have a faith because your parents teach you, you know, to have a strong faith. Then you start to grow when you get married because you have a faith together with your husband. Mm -hmm. And then when you have children, it takes you to a whole new level because Michael and I always said that our children, if we could teach them a faith and a conscience, everything else would be okay. And so all of a sudden it gets deeper. And then as I went through challenges in my life, it just went to another level. I Mm -hmm. mean, obviously when we dealt with the Charleston shooting, I think that was a huge turning point for me because it was so painful and it was so hard that there was no one or nothing that was going to get me through that but God. And mm-hmm. I I mean, that's when I started to believe in and just recite Joshua 1, 9, be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid. You know, for the Lord, your God is with you wherever for, you go. Mm-hmm. For God is with you wherever you go. And I think that was, you know, when you. When you feel that and you and it speaks to you, you look more for how else it can speak to you and how else you can grow your faith. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on the Charleston shooting in just a moment, which you write about in your book that's out. With all due respect, it was released in 2019. But just going back to the Sikh faith, I know you have converted to Christianity. Your parents are still Sikh. Are there parts of the faith, the tradition practices that you still implement into your daily life that you still hold dear I think, you know, more than that, it's just respect for parents, respect for family, um, love of all people, Mm -hmm. um, respect for all people. And, you know, in the Sikh faith, it acknowledges other religions. So it doesn't say you have to be Sikh or nothing else. It acknowledges other religions. It acknowledges Jesus. It acknowledges, you know, um, that Jesus was the son of God. So there's different things that they had. But more than that, what I take from it is the is the respect and the peaceful side mm. of the Sikh faith, which is respect everyone and everything you do in your life should lead to peace. And the best way to appreciate your blessings is to give back. Those were the things that I took away from what my parents taught us and mm-hmm. what the Sikh faith taught us. And so then when I converted to Christianity, those are all things that you can still go and build on mm-hmm. and carry it forward. But I, I, you know, I can't give enough credit to my parents for how they raised us and how much emphasis they put on the respect of other religions. And I think that's what made for me an easier transition. And they have never had a problem with the fact that I've converted. Mm-hmm. And 
I want to talk about your book. Yes. It's called With All Due Respect. It's out now. Congratulations. Thank you. It was a lot of fun to write. Very therapeutic. I can imagine. But in one of the sections, I know you talk about your faith in the book, but in one of the sections you talk about the Charleston shooting, which you just mentioned, and how much you relied on your faith to get you through that. You also made the decision to take down the Confederate flag mm-hmm. at the State House grounds. And you said at the time that it, um, because of the connection and the connotation to hatred and racism. Um, and I know recently you went on Glenn Beck and you said that uh, you caused a little controversy in that interview. You said that some saw the Confederate flag as service and sacrifice and heritage and that Dylan Roof, the gunman, hijacked it. Some people felt that this was a reversal because in 2015 you say um, that it's a deeply offensive symbol of a brutally oppressive past. Was it a reversal? It's so telling of how toxic politics has gotten. Literally the same words I said in Glenn, on the Glenn Beck show mm-hmm. are the same words I said in 2015. If you go back and read my speech where I'm asking for the flag to come down, I talk about how some people in the state saw the flag and related it to service and heritage. And I talk about the other people in the state that saw the flag and felt pain. And what I said was we don't want anyone in our state to feel pain when they see that flag. And I went on to say, not to judge either side. As a governor, that's not your job. You represent Mm -hmm. all people. What it was was, I need all of you to come together. You can have respect for the Confederate flag, but we're going to move it to a museum because it is a living, breathing symbol that does not represent all of the people in the state. And went on to talk about how if it causes any child pain when they pass that state mm-hmm. house, there's something wrong and we needed to pull it down. I mean, had I gone and said that half the state was racist, that flag would never have come down. Mm-hmm. I had to respect, not necessarily agree with, but respect that part of the state felt one way and the other part felt the other way. And my job was to bring them together and move them forward together. And so the idea that, you know, I think what you had were people waiting to throw a stone and they wanted to throw a stone. But this, these were literally the same words I said in 2015. Mm-hmm. You And you wrote an op-ed about it in The Washington Post, but you defended your comments and you blamed outrage culture. You blamed media hy- hysteria. Do you stand by what you said in that interview? I mean, that's, it's the truth. Part of the people in the state did see it mm-hmm. as heritage and sacrifice. They don't consider themselves racist. They don't think that they have ill will towards other people. I have friends who hold that same view. Yeah. Do I agree with it? I have always, no, I don't agree with it. I've always said that flag never should have been there in the first place. I said it in 2015. I say that today. Mm-hmm. And I stand by that. But I'm not going to deny what were the true feelings of a, of part of the state. And what's amazing to me is some of the people who criticized my comments know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyone that mm-hmm. lives in South Carolina will shake their head in agreement because they know that that was the case and they know that that's what we're dealing with. And because I had to get a two-thirds vote of the House and the Senate, it was walking a very fine line not to judge but to move everyone forward in the state. Mm-hmm. My goal was to diminish as much pain in the state as possible at the time. And removing the flag was part of that. It said so much about the people of South Carolina to come together 
and bring down a symbol that caused pain. Yeah. And I don't want anyone to take away from that. But the re- you have to be realistic in the fact there were two opposing sides at mm-hmm. the time. And I just think that if you lead, you're you're leading not by judging people. You're leading not by condemning them. You're leading by telling them how you can make yeah. life better. And that was my goal at the time. And we were successful in doing that. And had I done it any other way, it wouldn't have happened. And I worry, and I said in that op-ed, I worry today that I would not have been able to bring the flag down right. with as toxic as politics are today. You wouldn't have been able to get the vote. Well, I just vote. think that mm-hmm. if they're going to be that sensitive sure. to me saying the reality of what people were thinking at the time, mm-hmm. then it makes you question, you know, would we be able to get it down with people being overly sensitive at this mm-hmm. point? Let's talk about your time at the UN. And I should I call you ambassador? Should I call you governor? Your it's your, Nikki. <laughs> Each of those was a point in time. It's I Nikki. don't. I it just doesn't feel respectful enough to call you Nikki, considering the positions that you've held. You know, those positions were points in time. I am still Nikki today, and okay. so I think that's it's what's most comfortable for me. So let's talk about your time at the UN. You were a big champion for Israel during your time there. I know you supported moving the embassy to Jerusalem. You often called out what you referred to as anti-Israel bias within the UN. Um, so as a woman of faith, how did you reconcile support for Israel when um, you could say that there are some human rights abuses, allegations against um, against Israel for how they've treated Arabs in the region, Palestinians? Well, there were a couple of things. First of all, me speaking out against the Israel bashing at the United Nations was speaking out over something I saw and telling the truth. It was unfair. It was um, overly critical that when you have countries like Syria and North Korea and Iran um, and Cuba doing all and Venezuela doing all these terrible things, you're not saying anything about those countries, but you are tenfold complaining about Israel. So the it was just not balanced at all. That was so that was what I mainly criticized. Mm-hmm. The second thing was I told my team, I said, I can't continue to talk on this issue without going and seeing it for myself. So I traveled to Israel for the first time, and I traveled to the Palestinian areas for the first time because I wanted to see for myself what is the conflict, why is it there, and is there any resolution that could come of it. And what I found is there is not one Palestinian living in those areas that deserves that. They should have a better quality of life. I talk about in the book how I became emotional after going to the Palestinian camps, because when you see playgrounds and you see nets above those camps to to stop the um, when they throw tear gas to stop the canisters from hitting the kids, it's heartbreaking. And so I will always fight and say that Palestinian people deserve a better life. And that's only going to happen if we have a peace deal in place. Mm -hmm. But right now, the Palestinians won't even come to the table. And so it's not the Palestinian people I blame. It's the people that govern them that don't allow them to have a better quality of life. And so when it comes to the Israeli people, I know that basically their issue is security. They have to protect themselves. Both sides have to come to the table. Both sides are going to have to give a little. The ones that will benefit in a deal 
are actually the Palestinians because the only place they can go is up. Mm -hmm. But there has to be reasonable thinking, reasonable openness, and there has to be a will. And I believe that if there is a peace deal that comes, both sides will benefit and will know peace for the first time. So I pray for peace always for both Israelis and the Palestinians because they all deserve better. And right now is just, you know, it's something that I hope that one day the Palestinian leadership will realize mm-hmm. this is not about them. This is about the people. What I noticed is Israel is is ready and willing to come mm-hmm. to the table, but they're not going to go sacrifice everything they have in their national security when the Palestinians continue to threaten, continue to fight back and continue not to come to the table. There's a picture of you with your hand on the Western Wall. Mm. You're praying. Yes. What are you praying for? You know, I think at first I always am thankful. So the first thing I do when I um, when I go to the wall or when I pray in general is I thank God for all of the many blessings and I thank him for the good health and I thank him for family. And I and then you go and you pray for peace, right? Peace for me, peace for the world, um, peace and contentment overall. That's always what I what I pay for is for strength and peace. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I think at this point, people expect you to run for president. Um, Do you feel like God's calling you in that direction vocationally one day? You know, I feel um, I know people want me to. And I know that it's fun chatter for a lot of people. But saying it and doing it are two different things. It's very hard to run for president. That's Mm -hmm. not an easy thing. And so it's easy for people to say, oh, you should do it. But at the end of the day, it's not their family. It's not their sacrifice. It's not all of that. The way I've looked at my life and the jobs I've had in my life is I was never that kid that thought 10 years from now, I want to do this. And 20 years from now, I want to do this. For me, it was always what my mom told me, which is whatever you do, be great at it and make sure people remember you for it. And so I hunker down and I totally throw myself into any job I do. And I don't think about tomorrow. I only I've always said, make today better than yesterday. And that's as far as I go. And whenever I've done that, doors open. So when I worked really hard in the legislature, doors open for governor. And when I worked really hard for mm-hmm. governor, doors open and, and I became ambassador. And so I think just do the best you can and make people proud in the process. Mm-hmm. The way I look at it now is I think that politics is a lifetime. Anything can happen in politics. I mean, one year could be a lifetime in politics. So I think that what's best is to take it a year at a time. And I know this next year I will be campaigning for the president. I'll be campaigning for multiple senators and congressional members and governors who are running. Um, And so that'll get my campaign fix. I started a policy group called Stand for America, which you can go to (laughs) StandForAmerica.com. And that talks about just issues, real issues that I want younger people to know about, capitalism versus socialism, why there's an anti-Israel bias, term limits, why we fight for the people of Hong Kong and, and the Iranian protesters so much and what those human rights mean. And so that gets my campaign fix out of the way. That gets my policy fix out of the way. I wrote the book, so I feel like, um, you know, I didn't want to lose the emotion before I had a chance to write it. So I've gotten that out of the way. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm just, you know, going to continue to stay busy. I know I'm too young to stop fighting, but I think it's just too hard for me to imagine 
running for president at this point because it's just so far away. It has to be flattering, though. I, in fact, I was telling somebody a couple of days ago that I was interviewing you and they're like, oh, you're interviewing, you know, our our next president in 2024. So you hear this all the time. You say people are expecting you to. What does your family want you to do? You know, we've never talked about it. No, no. And if that shows you anything about how I'm not, my husband and I have never once had the conversation about, should we do this? Mm -hmm. Because we both know it's just too far away. It's just not worth wasting energy on. Instead, enjoy today, make the most of what you can, make a difference in any way that you can, and wait and see if that door opens. Mm -hmm. You're. It sounds like you would be open to it if the door did open down the road. I think if later, if we look at it and it makes sense, mm-hmm. um, and when I say if it makes sense, it's really more of a family decision. If, you know, I can tell you. You have two kids. Two kids who have, God bless them, you know, gone through two governor campaigns, you know, state house races and, and the public eye. And, you know, I just, I don't know how they would feel about that if I had that conversation with them. And honestly, I don't know how Michael would feel. He's my biggest supporter, but I don't know what he would say if we had it. I think we're all kind of in denial and just not, (laughs) not talking about it. Um, What did you think about all the chatter late last year that you were going to replace Mike Pence on the ticket with with President Trump in 2020? You know, it was frustrating because there was a lot of chatter and we tried to not talk about it. We tried to shut it down. Bottom line is Mike Pence is my friend. He has been a very good vice president. He's very good for the president and they make a great team. And I'm going to completely support Mike Pence and Donald Trump on the same ticket going forward. That was never an issue. The president has never had a conversation with me once about even possibly replacing Mike. And so um, I just felt bad because he's been nothing but a dear friend to me. And I have tried to be the best dear friend back to him. I want to talk about your relationship with Trump and and how your faith factored into repairing that relationship. In 2016, when he's running, he tweeted, the people of South Carolina are embarrassed by Nikki Haley. And then you tweeted right back. Bless your heart. And that's the ultimate Southern burn, is it not? <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> but, you know, that was him and that was me. Yeah. So I think what people don't realize is we knew each other before. Um, he had supported me in my first run for governor after I won the primary. I got this check in this, like, great envelope with gold trim. And there was a note inside that said, you're a winner. And so we knew of each other. We were acquaintances leading up to it. But in 2016, there were a lot of people on that stage and so much talent. And so when I went with a different candidate, that's when he said Nikki Haley's an embarrassment to South Who Carolina. Who did you endorse? Marco Rubio. Okay, that's right. And then, that's right. But the funny part is I knew when Kick T hollers, mm-hmm. he knew when I'm pushed, I push back. So we've always had a respect for each other. And so, you know, when there was no repair to be done, I am so blessed that I had the opportunity to work for him in the administration. I loved defending and fighting for America. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that there's a greater honor. And so um, and we worked great together. I mean, we were on the phone together a lot. I would meet with him whenever I'd go to D.C., which was once a week, once every two weeks. And we just were very much in sync. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody says, how did you get out of the administration without a tweet? And basically, I told him the truth. If he was doing something that I agreed with, I supported, I rallied, I fought for him. And if he was doing something I disagreed with, 
I told him the truth and said, I think you're making a mistake. Instead, you should consider X. And he would always say, well, how do you see that playing out? Mm -hmm. And we would have a discussion. There was never a time I didn't feel heard. There was never a time I was disrespected. And there was never a time where I didn't feel like we were partners. When you decided to step away from the UN, most people thought you were just getting started and you seem to be thriving in the position. And then you decide to step away. How much did faith factor into that decision? Well, I loved that job. You know, what it came down to is I have always prioritized my family, always. Um, Even when I was governor, you know, we'd have dinner with the kids five nights a week. Sundays were always family days. Friday nights were Haley family fun nights. You know, family always came first. And what I knew was that, you know, Michael and I take care of both of my parents. They live with us. My mom has Parkinson's. Um, They're both in their 80s. And it was really important for me to make sure I was focused on them. But our son is a senior in high school this year, and I wanted to go on the college visits, and I wanted to be with him and help him get through Wait, that he process. has a choice to go anywhere but Clemson? I thought that was just a given that he had to go to Clemson. No, he actually had the nerve to say that Clemson was his safety school. Oh, geez, that's an And that I said, hurt. I said, how can you say that? <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, he has applied, so we will see. There you go. Um, you know, but I wanted to be a part of that process yeah. for him, and there was no way I could continue to be at the U.N., and still be there for him the way I needed to be as a mom. And so, you know, I will always pick family first. Mm-hmm. It's important. And Good for you. I loved that job. But even know. though a lot of people thought, oh, she's crazy to do that. She's thriving. She's in her element. It's all about career, right? But you made a tough decision. And at the end of the day, you did it for your family. And I didn't want mom guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's the thing is like, all my life, whether, you know, I forgot to send a snack to school or whether I forgot to sign a paper, you live with that guilt. And to me, I thought, you know, you've only got one time to do this. Totally. And I needed to be there for him. And he actually was like, Mom, you can't quit. You can't do it. But, you know, it was the right thing to do. Then it's the right thing now. And mm-hmm. we're excited about seeing where he's going to end up going to school. The title of your book is called With All Due Respect. And I just want to give people a little context It's a reference to a moment in exchange you had with Larry Kudlow, the economic advisor, who said you were confused about a policy. We were having a situation um, with Russia, and we had had multiple national security meetings, and I had been there. And the president had made the decision along with his team that we were going to put sanctions on Russia. And I met with the president again the following day, and so they had asked me to do Sunday shows. And so... Um, confirmed everything with the president, and then on that Sunday went on Sunday shows and said, you know, why we were being hard on Russia, what we were going to do, all the things we had done so far, and said, you know, and Secretary Mnuchin will be announcing sanctions against Russia if he hasn't already. Fast forward, um, Stephen Mnuchin calls me that night and says, hey, want to give you a heads up. You didn't do anything wrong. But the president changed his mind. He wants to hold off on sanctions. Now, Paula, the president is absolutely allowed to change his mind. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, he can make those decisions anytime. And I said, no problem. Just correct it, you know, on the record and we can go forward. And so he said, yeah, they'll be putting out a statement. Well, they put out the statement the next morning and it didn't really it didn't just say the president is going to stall this. It kind of implied something gray. So I called the Secretary of State, I called the National Security Advisor, and I called the Chief of Staff, three different phone calls, and said, look, in my experience, tell the truth. Just say the President has decided to hold this for a while. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But if you don't clear this up, there's going to be a problem. And the press was calling me nonstop because they knew I wouldn't say something that wasn't true or accurate. And so the next morning, I call them again and I say, okay, the press is all over our office. You've got until five o'clock today. Either you fix this or I'm going to fix this. And you really don't want me to fix this. <laughs> and, you know, they all kind of gave me the runaround. And then sure enough, at 445, Larry, who is my friend, comes out to do a press conference. The question gets asked, which we all knew it would. And yep. he said, Nikki Haley must have gotten momentarily confused. Oh, my gosh. And I was looking at the at the news. And my friend Dana Perino was about to go on the five. And I just texted her and I said, can you call me? And she called me and I said, I've got a statement. And she said, okay, what is it? And I said, will you just say, with all due respect, I don't get confused. <laughs> and she said, that's it. I said, I'm going to text it to you so you have it in writing. Mm-hmm. And she did it. And within 10 minutes, Larry called me, who he hadn't called me back all day. Right. Larry called me and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, Larry, at what point would you say I am confused? Mm -hmm. He said, I've got my tail between my legs. I will make it up to you. And I said, you will make it up to me. And I said, you will call and tell them that you that what you said was wrong. He said, I can't do that. I said, you can and you will. And to his credit, within five minutes, he called a reporter and he fixed it and it all went away. But the the lesson to that is that no matter what happens, you are the only person that can protect your integrity. No one is going to fight for you but you. But how do you balance that as a woman of faith? Because I find I have a reputation to uphold and I don't want to ruffle feathers. You know, um, and so some people assume that as a woman in the workforce who is a woman of faith that you have to be meek. So how, how do you how do you reconcile that? I think you can be strong, but I think you can be respectful. Mm-hmm. So I there have been many times where I've had to speak up. But if you notice, I don't say a lot. I say just enough to get my point across and I stop. And I think that's the key is just to continue to show respect. And that's, you know, I learned my strength from my mom, but I learned respect from my dad. Mm-hmm. And so I think you have to marry the two, but you have to speak up for yourself, especially if you're a woman, because we think we're not supposed to. And the only one that loses is you. Let me ask you, and I ask this of all of my guests, where do you think you'd be without your faith? Oh, I can't imagine my life without my faith. I mean, mm-hmm. I would it, emptiness is all I can think of. I mean, truly, when I think of my faith and I think of how I've grown, you know, I talk about in the book that after the Charleston shooting, um, I was diagnosed with PTSD and I felt so guilty because I wasn't in that room where the murders took place. But that's when I learned that you can get PTSD by just knowing too much or too much of the emotion, or being around it. I mm. knew too many of the details. Yeah. I knew too many of the the people we had lost and had gotten too close to it. And I would, you know, do a press conference, come back into the office, and I would cry. I would go home, and I'd get in the bed, and I would cry. I stopped eating. I lost 20 pounds. I was so desperate. And at that time, that's when my physician said, look, you're showing all the signs of PTSD, I started talking to therapists, but at the end of the day, I remember praying to God saying, I don't know how to get through this. I need you. And 
had it not been for my faith, had it not been for God touching me and saying, I've got you, I would not have gotten through that. Mm -hmm. I know that without a question. And so I'm just so grateful and thankful. And my faith is one that I hope continues to grow and strengthen. Um, But I know the blessings of God. Mm -hmm. I know the blessings God has given me. And I know how God has saved me way more times than I can count. And so, you know, I always want to have faith as a part of my life. Always. Last question. One word. Describe your faith in one word. The first thought that came to mind was deep. It's good. Nikki Haley, even though it doesn't feel right to call you Nikki, I'm still going to call you ambassador. Nikki Haley, Ambassador Haley, Governor Haley, it's been a pleasure to have you on Journeys of Faith podcast. Thanks for stopping in. And best of luck to whatever comes next for you, whatever that may be. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Go Clemson. Go Clemson. (laughs) Always. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Journeys of Faith. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. And let us know what you think with a rating and a review. Journeys of Faith, it's a production of ABC Audio produced by Whitney Lloyd, Lewis Millman, and Susie Liu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Paula Ferris.